Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, or even if you didn't, it'll be up on the screen, you can find, either way, Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, as we continue in our series, God help us. In this case, God help us be authentic. And let me just get something out of the way right away. Yes, I do have a cold. But if my mom was here, she'd take care of it for me. She'd slather me with Vicks VapoRub. <laughs> this is my mom. It's my favorite picture of my parents. It really captures their effervescence, their love of life and one another. My mother was incredibly affectionate and very submissive. And uh, she was uh, a stickler for manners. And uh, she was also a wordsmith. And did I tell you she was a stickler for manners? <laughs> but she was a wordsmith. She had a large vocabulary. And she, any vocabulary that I have is built into me by, by my mother. She was also very self-controlled, although I must say that I <laughs> found ways to crack it from time to time. <laughs> she was also a great encourager. And of the, uh, of the plethora of uh, quotes on motherhood, and there are, you know, of the, of the making of many quotes on motherhood, there is no end. I came across this one the other day. It says, there's no way to be a perfect mother and a million ways to be a good one. I like that. That gives us hope. That gives you hope, moms, whoever you are. And one of the best ways you can be a, an encourager and uh, a good mother is to encourage your kids to be, as Lord willing, you are authentic by being authentic, matching your works with your words. Even as James told us, be doers of the word, what? Not hearers only. And John sort of buttresses that when he says in 1 John 3, Let little children, little tech down, little born ones, don't, don't love in word only, but in deed and in truth. So with that in mind, let me, just, let me just pray over all of you moms. If you're a mom, stand up right now. Stand up right now if you're a mom or a grandma or a great-grandma. Stand up. Look at all those moms. Let's give them a round of applause, shall we? Stay standing. Stay standing. Stay standing as I pray. Father, we love you and thank you for motherhood. It is true what Abraham Lincoln said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And I pray, Lord, that these mothers would be raising up game changers, children who would see their own authenticity and uh, come to know and live for Jesus. Bless these moms on this we have set aside as their special day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thanks, moms. So today, today as we get back into Ezra chapter 7, we meet Ezra for the very first time. We get to finally meet Ezra. He, he hasn't even been around, though he wrote the book. Uh, this is 60 years. There's 60 years between chapter 6 and chapter 7. If you like to write in your Bibles, you can write Esther right before chapter 7 because that's where the book of Esther takes place. Between those two. In fact, we showed you an outline a couple of weeks ago. Let me give it to you again, of, very simple, of the book of Ezra. The first six chapters is the first return, 50,000 Israelites from Babylon 
two, back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, having been taken captive for 70 years. And they laid the foundation of the temple. The year, as you can see it there, is 536 BC. And then the last half of Ezra, which we're just starting now, is the second return under Ezra himself. There'll be a third return, not in this book, that's in Nehemiah, 10 years later. But this is the spiritual life of the people restored. And notice again, the time for you numerology nerds, it's 458 BC. And so with that in mind, so the very first verse tells us the king is Artaxerxes. You see the last part of his name, Xerxes? That's the name you're familiar with in the book of Esther. It's Xerxes who married Esther. And this Artaxerxes is a successor to that one. This might also, by the way, uh, help us understand the sympathies that these kings had toward the Jews because of all that was happening around those times. So anyway, we are now talking about the second return of the Jews. 60 years later, not nearly as many people, only 1,500 men came on this journey. Chapter 8 lays all that out, 1,500 men plus a little bit more, plus women and children. So there, there were probably uh, four or 5,000, but that's a far cry from the 50, 60 years earlier. Ezra now comes after the temple is actually made and closer to the when, the when the wall is built, which is what Nehemiah is famous for. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries, Nehemiah being younger, but they were in the same, same time frame. Ezra wasn't about, listen to this, Ezra wasn't about building buildings for God. He was about building people, the people of God. That's what he was doing. And by the way, if the transformation of our property doesn't translate into transform people. We're wasting a lot of time and money. Can I say, can I get an amen for that? So Ezra, I'm going to, uh, my task today is to show you that Ezra is a portrait of authenticity. A portrait of authenticity that we can emulate, that we can follow as he followed the Lord. So Ezra, a portrait of authenticity. He had a, several things that he was great. He had a great upbringing. And the first five verses tell us, now after this is the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Shariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, son of Zadok. There are really two names I want to focus here on these first five verses. is Zadok and Phineas. Zadok was David's was David's chief priest. In fact, the line of Zadok, they literally ruled the high priesthood for hundreds of years, right up to like 171 BC. For hundreds of years, the, the Zadok clan ruled the high priesthood. And I point that out because many in Israel were praying that Israel would experience revival under a Zadokite type of a priesthood. He was, they were the godliest of all the priests. So Ezra comes from really spiritual, godly stock here, okay? And the other one is Phineas. Remember that name? There's a bad Phineas in the Bible in the Old Testament. That I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the good Phineas who's lauded, and we'll come back to him. Here's the bottom line. Ezra had a great pedigree, and he lived up to it. I was reminded of a Chicago bank uh, that requested a recommendation uh, from an, uh, an investment house in Boston, Massachusetts, for a, a certain guy that was, was, uh, had applied for the bank in, in Chicago. 
And so what, what, the, uh, what the Bostonians did was they replied to the Chicago Bank by listing the lineage of this man, that he had come from, from just amazing financial stock, and you can just trust him because of all of his forefathers. To which they replied, they rejected, that is the Chicago Bank rejected the Bostonians' uh, investment house's reply saying, quote, we are not using the young man for breeding purposes. So if you're trusted in your lineage, stop it right now. Be thankful for it. Be inspired by it, and so you should. But heed the words of the Apostle Paul who said, we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. Amen? Romans 14. Some of you have generations to look back on and inspire you in your walk with God. Jared Leonard, one of our own elders, he can go back generations. Amazing. The godlike things that have taken place in their lives. And just the other day, someone, someone came with a history of Sailorville Baptist Church right up to 1998 when I came. Nobody's written one since, so I guess we're kind of writing it now, but, but I just was enamored with this. It was a very thick, over 100 pages. I'm reading the history. And I mean, it was great reading because I read to great men and great women who made great sacrifices for what God has wrought here. And it caused me to say, oh God, give me their faith as we ought to pray. Great upbringing. He had great faith, speaking of faith. Look at chapter 7 and go to verse 6 where we're told, uh, this was Ezra, who went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled. Remember that word, skilled. I'll come back to it later. In the law of Moses, that of the, the Lord, the God of Israel, and, uh, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. Go all the way down to verse 18, because what, what, this is in the midst of a letter that Ezra... Now, Ezra's leading this group of 1,500 men, plus their women and children from Babylon, back to Jerusalem. It's a 900-mile trip. It's a dangerous trip. The king gives him a, a bona fide letter saying, you can do this, and a bunch of stuff to go along with it. But look at verse 18. We'll skip down to there. Whatever seems good, this is the king writing to Ezra, whatever things seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Your God. In other words, keep the change, Ezra. I'm giving you a bunch of stuff. Just keep the change. Do with it what you want. Verse 19, the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. In other words, don't just keep the change. Use my credit card. I mean, it's basically a card blanche is what this king, Artaxerxes, has done. And in the context, he loads up Ezra with Gold and silver and wheat and wine and salt and oil. And again, he's got all of this stuff for the temple to enhance the temple back in Jerusalem, which has now been built. And he has given him all of this, and here's the one thing he didn't give him, protection. Because the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem, 900 miles, would have been fraught with thieves so where is Ezra's faith exhibited? It is exhibited in the fact that he was not only trusting the Lord God, 
but he made it clear to the king himself, we're trusting God on this venture. In fact, go to chapter eight and look at verse 21, where here's what it says, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Hava, that mean, the word means love, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, all our goods. Now watch this. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is, is for our good and for all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against those who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Why do I think this is fascinating? I think it's fascinating because Ezra made himself accountable to the king that he was trusting the Lord, not to get any protection from the king. Because if you read Nehemiah, don't go there now, Nehemiah is basically given an almost identical card blanche in the third wave 10 years later. The difference is Ezra refused to seek protection from the king. Nehemiah said, I'll take it. <laughs> and he got protection from the king. He got soldiers and people to protect him on the 900-mile trip. A lot of us are like the woman that was on a ship, passenger ship, out on the sea during a violent storm. Ship was being tossed to and fro. She went up to the captain and she said, is there any hope, captain? To which the captain replied, our only hope is in God. To which the woman replied, are things really that bad? <laughs> the humor in that is the truth within, is it not? It's only when we get tossed and turned and our lives are going to get flipped around. Then, Oh, man, let's put our hope in God. Last I checked, I think that's supposed to be a daily thing, right? Well, who was right, by the way? Was Ezra right or Nehemiah right? Was Ezra right not uh, trusting the Lord only without protection or Nehemiah right trusting the Lord with protection? I think they're both right. But there are times, and this was one of them, where faith needs to take on flesh. Years ago, in the very first building campaign I ever conducted was at Holmes Baptist Church in the early 90s. And I studied the Word of God on finance and particularly on borrowing. And I came up with four principles that I brought here to Sailorville. The four principles I, I learned on borrowing were these. Number one, borrowing is never encouraged in Scripture. Did you know that? Number two, borrowing is always discouraged in Scripture. Did you know that? And here's number three. Here's the loophole. You're just waiting for it. Borrowing is not outrightly prohibited in Scripture. And that gives way to the therefore, the fourth principle. Therefore, borrowing is not a matter of sin. It's a test of faith. And this is powerfully illustrated right here. We have chosen to trust God without borrowing, without going to the soldiers and all the people that protect us from outside. We're trusting for it with it. Does that make us more spiritual? Maybe, maybe not. But it keeps us from condemning those who do borrow. Amen? We don't ever want to get smug in our walk with God. 
But it does, it's, remember what I, the fourth principle is borrowing isn't a matter of sin, it's a test of faith. And wow, was my faith tested in 1994. When we were building, a building was gonna cost $250,000, which is like a drop in the bucket compared to today. I'd think $3 million back then, it might as well have been for our, our country church. And, uh, and so we raised about half of it. And we had one more offering to go, and it was an offering. Our people were given sacrificially, and at the end of the offering, we still owed about $120,000 to $130,000 if we were ever going to launch this campaign. And I was so discouraged because we had no more plans to raise money, and our people were already tapped out. They'd given so faithfully. They'd given so sacrificially. And I remember going into my office that Monday wondering how I was going to communicate with them because we were not going to be able to go forward even as we had planned. And there on my desk was a letter. I still have it. And I walked in, I picked up the letter. It was from one of the leading men in our church. And he said, and I paraphrase, Pastor, thank you for leading us in this venture. Myself and about a half a dozen other men have met secretly, and we believe we can come up with the resources to cover three-fourths of what we need to complete this. Let's do it. And I remember what that did for my faith. My, my faith was tested. I was wavering. I'll be the first to confess. But man, did it soar then. And we have seen here, by the way, 25 years later, just the other day, just off the phone with the pastor of that church, and God is doing great things again there. They're building on again, and they're not borrowing any money. They're keeping that philosophy going, and to God be the glory. Here at Sailorville Church, we have spent multiple millions of dollars purchasing property to the south, the north, the east. We've doubled in size and we do it all to the glory of God because his good hand has been on us, amen? Every good gift, every per perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation, not even a shadow of turning. But God give us greater faith and thus be more authentic in our walk with God. Thirdly, he had great humility. Look down to verse 21 Chapter 8, verse 21, rather. Chapter 8, verse 21. He says, then I proclaimed a fad. Now, this, they're on their way back. They stopped halfway for three days, and they realized they didn't have any priest with them. So they sent some people back to get more priests. In the meantime, they're, they're just super humbled about what's going on here. And they proclaimed a fast there at the, at the River Hava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him for a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods and he goes on. There is great humility here and throughout the life of Ezra. And I would just say to you that boldness and humility are not like oil and water. They should be, they, they should be one. We can be humble and bold at the same time, and we should be. I mean, Ezra, if you look at chapter 9, when he finds out that, that the believers are marrying and intermarrying with unbelievers, boy, am I glad that doesn't take place anymore. Jeez, nothing new under the sun here. What does he do? Verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, pulled out my hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled and trembled at the words. Wow. That's demonstrative. 
There's great boldness and great humility woven together here. If you interviewed Ezra on his successes, which were many, he wouldn't talk about his charisma, his demonstrative behavior. He would not talk about his giftedness or his determination to apply all these wildly successful principles he hadn't read from good to great. His answer would be simple. His answer would be humble. And his answer would be repeated. He said this along with Nehemiah eight times. And here it is. The good hand of the Lord was upon me. There it is. The good hand of the Lord was upon me. That's even better than, better than I deserve. That's not even out of Scripture. I like that line. But I like this. It's humble. It's greatly humble. That was Ezra. An authentic life is a humble life that realizes that our blessings come from God, amen? Without him, we can do nothing, amen? Then there's great gratitude. Back to chapter seven, the very end, in verse 27, notice what it says. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. He's talking about uh, Artaxerxes. Uh, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. Great gratitude. Authentic Christianity is filled with gratitude no matter what is happening in your life. One of the greatest tests of whether you are a true, fervent follower of Jesus is when you can show real gratitude in hard times. Now, this isn't necessarily a hard time, but just the other day, one of our, one of our faithful deacons who was tasked to give a report in our meeting about his life, his ministry, and what God was doing in his life, uh, did just that. And he shared some very really some deep burdens about his life, really burdens that we needed to pray over. But he did so by enfolding those burdens in just great gratitude, thanking all of us for who we were, what we meant to him, for what his church means to him, for what God means to him, what the gospel means to him. In fact, by the time he got done, I kept thinking, does he have a burden here? He really did have a burden, but he didn't let it it get lost. He didn't let the gratitude get lost in the burden. When we're hurting and we can bless the Lord in our hurt, that is one of the greatest, that's one of the greatest praises. That's one of the greatest evidences that you are a real follower of Jesus. When you say, when someone says, how are you doing? You say, I'm blessed. You don't just mean things are going great. Swimmingly, No, you mean, I'm blessed of God. And you might have to even say, in spite of the difficulties that are happening in my life, I am blessed. When the children of Israel came back, they were so grateful. Here's a psalm that was written because of this, Psalm Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. They were like in a dream coming back. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they sat among the nations. These are other people talking about them. The Lord has done great things for them. And how did they reply? Yes, he has. 
The Lord has done great things for us, and we are what? We're glad. We're grateful. Ezra was authentic in his gratitude and in his courage. He had great courage. Just one line, right the next line that follows in chapter 7, verse 28. Because of this, I took courage. I took courage. When God does things in our life, does that not encourage us? Does that not infuse us with strength? By the way, that's what to encourage someone means literally to encourage. Encourage, E-N means in, means inside. It means to put courage in somebody. That's what it means. God will do it through circumstances. And when he encourages us, we respond. Remember who was in Ezra's ancestry? Zadok and who else? Phineas. Phineas. You guys remember Phineas? I want to remind you of who Phineas was as only Eugene Peterson in his message translation can describe it. Numbers 25, here's what it is. Look it up at the board. While Israel was camped at Shittim Achaia Grove, the men began to have sex with other Moabite women. It started when the women invited men to their sex and religion worship. They ate together and then worshiped their gods. Israel ended up joining in the worship of Baal of Peor. God was furious, his anger blazing out against Israel. God said to Moses, take all the leaders of Israel and kill them by hanging, leaving them publicly exposed in order to turn God's anger away from Israel. Moses issued orders to the judges of Israel. These are the orders. Each of you must execute the men under your jurisdiction who joined in the worship of Baal Peor. Just then, just then, while everyone was weeping in penitence at the entrance of the tent of meeting, an Israelite, an Israelite man flaunting his behavior in front of Moses and the whole assembly paraded a Midianite woman into his family tent. Phineas, that's our man, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw what he was doing, grabbed his spear, followed them into the tent, and he shishkebobbed them. In the very end, that stopped the plague from continuing among the people of Israel, even though a lot of them died. By the way, every once in a while, some kids come up to me after I get done preaching, they, they draw me a picture from what I... Don't draw this picture, okay? <laughs> but this is the line that Ezra came in, the line of Phineas. And you saw it happen. It stopped the plague. And some of you are probably saying, oh my goodness, could God actually honor such a thing? Well, in one of the Psalms that goes through the history of Israel, puts it like this, Psalm 106. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped, and what was counted, that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. I'd say God bless that, wouldn't you? I was with some young ministers just the other day, and we were talking about the difference between miracles and the miraculous. Is there a difference between a miracle and the miraculous? And I'm going to suggest to you, yes, there is. Just because something isn't technically a miracle doesn't mean it isn't miraculous. When David killed Goliath, was that a miracle? 
Go like this. No, it wasn't. Very accurate, but it wasn't a miracle. Was it miraculous? Dang right it was. Killed him. They won the battle. It was amazing. And every kid has Goliath, you know, every... Anyway, enough of that. Listen, God does miraculous. He does the miraculous when there is either a great need that we cry out to him for, or there is great courage that is exhibited in the moment. When I look at Scripture and I study miracles and the miraculous, either one, pick, your, pick it out, miracle or miraculous, I see God doing so. Not just because, you know, somebody said the other day, boy, I'd sure like to see more miracles happening. I don't think he's going to give you a miracle, I, I thought. Look at your life. You love Jesus, but you're not doing anything. You're not exhibiting any courage. You don't have any great needs. And when I see this, I see God coming through miraculously when there's a great need from God's people or when we exhibit great courage and then he comes through big time. Ezra is a chip off the old block. I don't have to tell any of you here that our nation is in great trouble right now. And if you don't see it, you're blind. And I pray that God would raise up Phineas's in our time to stop the plague of filth that's flooding the country and seeping into the church. And by the way, I don't mean literally. I don't want you to go out there and look for a spear here, okay? The word of God will do, amen? That cuts both ways, right? It pierces even the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Use the sword of the spirit. That'll shish kebab him for Jesus. But that takes great courage. And I think that's when God acts, when we show great courage. Finally, he was a great doer. And this is the passage many have memorized, maybe even you have, verse 10 right here. We'll come back to that outline. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to what? Say it, everyone. Do it. That's the difference maker. To do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He was a full, he was a full man. He was a completely balanced man. He was a well-rounded man. And I noticed from this passage that God, great doers have tender hearts. He set his heart. Remember Daniel? He was a contemporary of Zerubbabel. He's been gone by now. Daniel has probably died. In fact, I know he has. But Daniel, we're told when he was younger, purposed in his heart not to defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. Have you ever read that? That's where it begins, your heart. Get your heart right with God. Some of you, your hearts are not right with God. You don't even know him. That's where it begins. Peter said, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man of the hope, the reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Great doers have tender hearts. Great doers have sharp minds. You see, he set his heart to study. You see that there? Verse 6, remember I said there's that word skilled? The Hebrew word skilled is a really cool word. It literally means to be quick, means to be speedy. It's sort of the opposite of being cumbersome. Have you ever heard somebody teach the Bible where you're just going, oh, this is painful? That's not Ezra. 
It's making sense. It's super clear. And 10 years later, this very same Ezra will show up after the third wave comes back under Nehemiah. The walls are built. The choir comes up. He steps onto a platform. Nehemiah does, or not Nehemiah, but Ezra does in chapter 8 of, of, uh, of Nehemiah. And he begins to preach. And all around him, if you count it, you can, re- you can read Ezra, or again, Nehemiah chapter 8. There's 13 men on the platform with him, and there's 13 Levites out there amongst the thousands. And these 26 go, and as Ezra preaches, they're going around and explaining. Here's how, here's how Nehemiah puts it, Nehemiah 8.8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So just the other day, I'm at a coffee shop with uh, three of the guys that I work with, uh, brand new Christians, but really growing in the Lord. And they brought a friend. I hope the friend is going to be here today. He's investigating Christianity. It was a great conversation. Very tenderhearted. We're open talking. And they sort of teed me, a pastor kind of tee him up, you know, share the gospel with him, which I did. And, you know, when I got down, I'm thinking, that pretty much did it. He's got to get it now, right? And one by one, those three guys are with me, chimed in and gave the sense. They just gave the sense and gave the sense, explaining things that I thought I'd already explained thoroughly, but apparently not well enough. And you could just see the light coming on. This is what goes on. If you're a doer of the word, You'll not not only have a tender heart, you'll have a sharp mind, and you'll realize that uh, your limitations, you need others. This is why we have community groups. This is why we have Bible studies, because all of the teaching that emanates doesn't just come from this pulpit. Amen? It better be right. It better be accurate right here. But we need people all around giving the sense. Authentic followers need more than truth, but they don't need less. Doers, study. Remember the old Awana verse? Study to show yourself what? Approved to God. A workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Then great doers have great wills. This is the, this is the line. The, he did all this to do what he was teaching. If you didn't have this, that, that phrase to do, then this is just like a hundred other verses in the Bible. But this is what makes him the well-rounded man that he was. The problem with some of us, we have big heads rather than burning hearts. Remember those two guys that Jesus met on the road to Emmaus after he rose from the dead? You know, he taught the word of God. Remember all that? And when he finally disappeared, they said, did did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us along the way? Now let's go have hearts burning conferences all over the place. Is that what they said? No, their hearts burned, and then they went and told everybody that he is risen. And that's what a well-rounded, authentic follower of Jesus Christ does. You take the word of God, you understand the word of God, you articulate the word of God, and then you do the word of God. Because you're a doer of the word, not a hearer only. It wasn't enough that Ezra was a great student. He was a great change agent Scholars don't change the world. They inform it, and that's good. God is looking for men and women 
well-rounded in their knowledge and with the guts to put their knowledge to practice. The best teachers make the best doers. Amen? And it's not enough that we have godly men. We need gospel men. It's assumed that if you love God and you're a part of this church, you are a godly person and you're pursuing godliness. But if you do that, then the gospel must be infused in your life and coming out of your pores. Total authenticity, well-rounded ministry, seeking, doing, teaching. By the way, when James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, he follows it by saying that God, he will, bless, he will be a blessing in his doing. Have you ever read that? God doesn't bless us for what we know. He blesses us for what we do with what we know. So here's the question. Are you authentic? Are you authentic? Or are you a fake? I don't think Donald Trump coined the word fake news, but made it a household phrase, didn't he? Some of us are just fake. I remember at the eve of building, the first building project I had, the one I referred to earlier back at Holmes, we had an influx of Hispanic people because they came up from Mexico because uh, an entrep- a wealthy entrepreneur had moved into our area and was building all kinds of chicken places and egg factories. And he was employing hundreds of Hispanics and paying them just enough to keep them from starving. And we led... Vigilio and Melissa to Christ. In fact, they would be the first ones baptized in that new facility. And they were just struggling to make ends meet. And so I went and met with that man, that wealthy entrepreneur, because he claimed to be a Christian. And he told me how he'd prayed a prayer and he'd trusted Jesus. He'd gone forward in a revival. I said, then why, why all these complaints? He said, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm giving them money. I went back to Vigilio and Melissa. I'll never forget this. And I explained to them that this wealthy entrepreneur was a born-again Christian. I'll never forget Melissa, who barely knew a lick of English. She looked at me and she said, Pastor, I do not believe it. Are you authentic? And when someone looks at your life, Will they say, I believe it, or not? God help us. God help us to be authentic. I pray for those who are here who do not really know Jesus. They know him and they give him lip service, but they have never exercised true faith. And I pray that if that's you, dear friend, you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. And for those of us who do know him, oh God, like Ezra, make us authentic. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.